This is Richard Fordham on the Anchor Podcast with Matthew Devereux, distinguished actor and other things, and I'll pass over to him for a further introduction. Well, I'm sitting here with a very old friend of mine, Richard Fordham, on a sunny spring afternoon in North London, and I met Richard some 40 years ago now at a party at his house in Oxford. The party was attended by many interesting people uh, working in what we would call for a better phrase, the alternative music scene in Oxford. Many uh, subsequently became very good friends and collaborators over many years. But this was the central focal point, that's the impression I got, of much of what one might call the alternative or underground music scene in Oxford. Richard. Thank you, Madame Matt. That's a splendid introduction and probably rather overstates the case. But the fact is, I was a poly lecturer, which I'd gone to from Cambridge University to to Oxford Poly to really get some time to do music. And I used to go to this splendid uh, bar called the Orange and Lemons, a pub, and I got to know an awful lot. That was indeed the focal point of a large part of the underground scene in Oxford. And they came back to my house. And I had these annual parties. And I remember Matt saying he'd heard of it but didn't like to crash it one year, didn't you, Matt? Well, that's a very interesting story, because when I was at Chelsea Art School, as a kind of a, a bumptious adolescent, uh, there was talk going around that there was a party taking place in Oxford, and the host was uh, some flamboyant and crazy fellow, and it was the place to be. Uh, but even though I was a bumptious adolescent, I still had some modicum of good manners about me and I didn't want to crash a party. I thought, well, I don't want to travel all the way to Oxford and invite myself into a stranger's house. So I said, well, no. Then the following year, and I thought about this, it was 1982, I I had uh, an invitation. It was uh, through uh, our mutual friend Gordon Winter. And I arrived and it was splendid. And there was a wonderful sense of free thinking, a wonderful sense of free imagination and the most striking thing I saw when I arrived was in your very modest but well-appointed house there was a modest but well-appointed garden and a bunker with a beautiful piano in it which I believe you composed many of your songs. Yes that's absolutely true it was a pentagonal bunker and I did it in order to get rid of hundreds of tons of earth because I put an extension onto the back of this house it was a terraced house but quite tall and um, I made uh, two humps at one third and two thirds of the way down this 70 yard garden and under the first hump I put this pentagonal bunker that Matt referred to and I had my piano in there and indeed did Mm. write lots of songs at it. Those who were brought up in the 90s generation it was like that children's show uh, the the little Tinky Winky show, where uh, the Teletubbies, it was literally a miniature version of the Teletubbies mound, and it looked almost like a a military defensive position, but then you looked closer, there was a lovely French-style door, one opened the door, and there was this almost cocoon-like atmosphere in there, very intense, with an upright piano inside, and and that's where many of your ideas came. Indeed, yes. I just put out... um the other day on Instagram, I have a thing there called Music Fordham, and I put out a, a song called Little Witch, which was actually played by some poor pianist over and over again. It's just a piano track with a voiceover, and that was obviously recorded there. So yes, hundreds of songs were written in there, some good, some bad, and some ugly. But um, I, the, the party that Matthew refers to was indeed the peak of my year every June I did this party until I got too exhausted by it, because it was rather wearing. I had to start work on it in December <laughs> to get there by June. Yes. Well, and also I remember, and it's become something of, a, something of a trademark now, it's even part of your 
what one might call official logo. The first time I clapped eyes on you, you were wearing one of those uh, colonial hats. Are they called solar topi? Solar topi, exactly. Yeah, yes. and that was, and also, uh, I don't want to dig up any dark episodes from your past, but you were wearing it, you said, to uh, conceal a wound that you had, um, uh, that you'd fallen over. Uh, a week before, after much merriment. Quite in, possibly. Yeah, but I sorry. Can, I don't recall that. I don't wish to scandalise you. I do apologise. <laughs> I withdraw that statement. Well, I could well have fallen over. But anyway, <laughs> it was a super party. Now, I'm thinking of the people... Uh, it was Gordon Winter who introduced me yes. to it. And it was... Then I'm, I met the likes of Millery Hughes, uh, Brian Warner, and the Oranges and Lemons was always an, more of an idea for me than a reality, but it was a pub near your house, just going towards the Magdalen Bridge, was it, it not? It was, we were all very close to the Magdalen Bridge, which was kind of at one end of the focus of Oxford's high street. And Origin was, was this pub that seemed to do no selling of beer virtually at all. It had mostly teenagers in there that couldn't drink, but it had wonderful music. It had, lots of famous bands went there. I uh, can't recite their names. Well, there are lots of collaborations uh, uh, over the years, uh, bands who've gone on to do different things. One that comes to mind uh, was Kim Kim Roo. No, Kimberly Roo. Kimberly, well, Kimberly Roo was probably that, but he was an, he was a Cambridge man. He, he was ah. He wasn't part of the, of the of the Oxford scene at all, but he was uh, he. So, he, but he would have been there. Kimberly. Did you know him through your Cambridge connections? Yeah. Right. He well, played he, my very first song back in 1972. And that was before. after the Peterhouse days, or quite long. Well, during after. the Peterhouse days. During the Peterhouse days. He does carried on. For me, for a long time, fifteen years or so, <laughs> it was right. during those days. But yes, Kimberly was um, the first person who played a song of mine, and I, I and I, I showed it to him. He said, "I think that'll do." He's a very understated sort of fellow. Always says, "No, I think that's that'll be okay." And uh, that that he was a man who encouraged me to actually do music. Yes. So he's rather seminal. But the sort of people you'd have seen at that party that I remember more vividly than I do Kim, because I didn't realise he was actually at that one. Um, but people like Huey Hart. And Hugh, Hughie mm-hmm. McCann, the finest fiddle player in the world. Ah, oh, well, tell us who, more. Who sang, who sang like Bing Crosby. He was a wonderful man. And he was not shy of saying he was the finest fiddle player in the world and would get to do the fiddle as often as he possibly could at these parties. But, of course, there was a whole crush of musicians wanting to play there. There was Pat Fish and, and mm-hmm. hundreds of other musicians. So I set up microphones and things so people could play their music. That was part of the ambiance, was mm. having live music. And there were people hanging out of the, the, the windows in June Street at the end of the, uh, the garden watching it. It was uh, like a show. Superb. It went on for about six hours. And it was, it was um, kept going by a thing called the Corpus Greeny, which, yes. was, um, which was green. And it was, it was alcoholic. And in fact, it was quite pleasant to drink. Until uh, one year, the Irish, there was, there was a heavy contingent of Irish because there were lots of Irish navvies who lived mm-hmm. in the houses next door. And they were all very good fun. But they then had the idea of putting Pochine into the Corpus Greeny. Oh dear. And the effect on the attendees was quite dramatic. <laughs> they all <laughs> fell over. So that one was a bit of a washout, but um, they didn't do it again. If you mention, uh, and understandably, and, and rightly so, the word Oxford, it carries with it the uh, notions of this great university town founded in the Middle Ages. And of course, that is indeed what it is. I particularly love visiting Oxford for the architecture, its history. But there is a, a completely separate culture in Oxford which, which operates under the radar, under the cultural radar. And this is the culture 
that, that I, I, I believe you're talking about. The oranges and lemons. Describe the interior of it. I believe it was quite an austere, rough and ready well, pub. Dingy, I should say. Mm. Yes, and, and there was a uh, that went on the occasions when there was music. There was a bar, but uh, I say it was mostly soft drinks. Um, there, was a, there was a stage in it, and that's about all. It was a fairly bare box of a place, but the mm. music was quite wonderful. There was all sorts of different bands, two or three bands a night, and. Um, I, uh, I, I'm, and in between the bands was this wonderful chap uh, well he was wonderful to some people and not so wonderful to mm-hmm. Terry Walpole by yes. name. when he spoke to you spittle sprayed out of him like a fountain and that made him a little difficult to stand close to but he was a sweet fellow he was very unusual to, uh, very very unusual he had waist length uh, hair brown hair and he wore dresses but he wasn't, uh, in fact, he was, he was perfectly heterosexual, but he didn't look as if he was, and he got attacked by people, uh, the more sort of navvy-like people. So he was uh, a cross-dresser, but it, 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 that one couldn't infer anything about his sexuality from no, his he, he, he subsequently sartorial got married choice. Or, or got a partner yes. and had children. Mm. That was after I knew him. But he was writing, wrote these poems, yes. and they were mostly utter gibberish, but I bought them at the various pubs at which the bands played because he followed the bands around to do his inter-round summaries, which was sort of, you bastards, you bastards, you absolute bastards, <laughs> BB, yes, swearing yes, in it. Yes. But the, the couplet of his that I treasure mm-hmm. was uh, uh, the, the following, which is, um, I was on the top of a bus and a man said, are you one of them or one of us? And he said, I'm one of me. Well, that's a, that that's a wonderful epigram. Wonderful well, that, if that's all he produced, that's the, the jewel in the manure, really. It's I'm wonderful. Afraid, it wouldn't be polite to say that, but that would be a correct description of what I knew. <laughs> he, made, um, he did carry some weight in alternative circles. There's a, a cafe called the Troubadour in... Um, Earl's Court? Yes, Earl's Court, mm. a famous, uh, famous um, sort of left-wing uh, poetry and jazz kind of place mm. that I used to go to for breakfast, in fact, but he went to the basement, which is where poets got to do their poetry, and Terry managed to go down there quite often, I think, to do his poetry in the, um, the basement. I think he was, his poetry was valued. Well, I think particularly with these alternative clubs, uh, there is... Um a covenant between the audience and the performer. The audience are, are not like certain audiences who fold their arms and say, come on, you rotter, entertain me. There is that openness to something strange. And even if initially the audience uh, are not entertained or knocked over or convinced, there is still that covenant of patience with the audience and also a delight even in things that don't come off uh, because the, the whole nature of an experimental performing venue or, or the ethos is that sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't so there's that adventure yes. i think there was a sense of members of the audience i assume from the oranges and lemons though i never went there in its heyday and similar clubs is come on and, and maybe something a bit shocking and maybe something yes. that will provide well, anecdotes the people in the audience would have been members of the various bands that were playing yeah but uh, when terry walpole got on stage there were a number of people who shouted him get off it you silly ass or things a lot ruder than that because right. they knew what he was like. Then he'd, he'd demand the microphone and give out uh, his staccato um, poems full of, as I say, swear. Oh, fair enough. Uh, so that sort of, that, that sort of undermined my in thesis. In your face kind of stuff. In your yeah. face. And, of course, I suppose that the, the chance of brickbats is part of the fun as well. I don't think there was anything thrown, but there mm. could well have been. Or verbal fact, ones, at least. Well, when, uh, <laughs> uh, to start, uh, well, give an idea of the character of the place, um, when I first met Gordon Winter that Matt mm. referred to, who brought him to my party, um, at that Orange Lemons. And he had this huge placard saying, Naff the Law. 
and all his song, it, he was a band called the English Subtitles, and he couldn't sing or anything like that, he just liked being on stage. So he had this huge placard saying NAFTA law, and he used to wave that from his great height of six foot six or whatever it is, over the audience, saying NAFTA law, NAFTA yes. law, and they'd all shout back NAFTA law with huge joy, yes. and th- that would be a tremendous uh, success. Well, kind of thing. he was a very, char- is a very charismatic man, I mustn't speak of him in the past tense, but uh, those of you listening, uh, would almost certainly, or have a good chance of recognising his face. Uh, he's uh, after being in these alternative post-punk bands. He then pursued a career as a comic actor, and oh, that, if you hear that noise in the back, that's just uh, somebody ringing the doorbell. But it's nothing to do with this show. Um, you would um, definitely recognise. He had a very long, almost uh, gargoyle-type face, and by no means. Um, by no means uh, ugly, but just incredibly distinctive and very expressive. Uh, he would have done very well in the silent movies, and also he did very well in a Guinness advert, which just involved him grimacing and gurning. Yes. And uh, yes. Uh, it was very, very popular. But he was no singer. He wasn't a musician to speak of. No. But he had lots of energy and a great deal of charisma. Mm-hmm. And he was, uh, and he got to do the. Uh, you've led me to think he got to do the ads because I, I subsequently bought a flat in Soho, which I loved the idea of to try and get my songs somewhere, which it never really worked doing. But Gordon came and was my tenant for a number of years, and he uh, was right on the, on the doorstep of all the ad agencies. And no sooner had an ad appeared uh, for, 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 for a performer than he was on their doorstep. And oh, yeah. A huge amount of work. Well, and eventually he got it through. My mother, my mother was an agent at the time and of took course, him on. I'd forgotten, yes, yes. yes. Uh, he... The story, though, with all these stories, they get elaborated over the years as they become anecdotes and then another little bit is added on and another bit is added on. But I think it's still basically true. I remember the time he came around to my parents' flat in Gospel Oak and I think we'd had a lunchtime drink and he started putting on silly character voices and uh, my mother in an ill-guarded moment, said, that's wonderful. If uh, you get an equity card, come and see me and we'll take you on our books. My mother at the time was working as a theatrical agent. Uh, she'd forgotten she said it. And then a few months later, a knock on her door, and she went, oh, God. And she had some dim memory of it, but then had to honour it. And he did very well. Uh, but going back to the music scene, there was English subtitles, and then I worked with Gordon in a band called Gorp, And uh, incidentally, I'm sitting, as I said, with with Richard in It's a Lovely Sunny Spring Afternoon. We're at a house in North London near the Regent's Canal and a former warehouse just a few hundred yards away from here, a disused warehouse, was where Gordon set up a club called the Beat Bop Club where we did a lot of stuff. So going back to my earlier point, uh, it all started in Rectory Road, Oxford. Uh, It was like, I would say, not wishing to exaggerate, but... I'm allowed, perhaps a little bit as I get older, a bit of hyperbole is permitted. It was like a salon. It did have a feeling of a salon, of uh, exciting and creative misfits. I'm glad to hear you say that. I think probably exciting and creative misfits is a neat way of summarising most of us. Yes, mm. in some ways or another, we would be some kind of misfit. But there were an awful large range of people there. About, about a quarter of them would have been students at Oxford. 
there weren't many poly students, although I was teaching there, because most of them didn't have the kind of spark involved, really. Mm. But uh, an awful lot of people who hung around, like Terry Walpole. In fact, Terry Walpole, the man who spluttered and, and, and swore at the audience in between bands... And wore dresses. And wore dresses. Mm. He uh, still lives in Oxford, in a part of Oxford called Jericho, because I saw a news item where it just happened that he'd walked past, he lived there, and someone had, I don't know, threatened suicide or something, so it was a news item. And mm. uh, Daryl Terry still lives there. Oh, wow. I don't, haven't seen him for decades, but I have seen Pat Fish, who lives in... Uh, Northampton, and he had seen he had seen um, Terry a bit. Because Pat Fish was a very charismatic fellow as well. You probably wouldn't remember him, but he was a leader of a band, and he would mm-hmm. do these things. And he'd have done a few songs, you know, uh, over there. I have got some records of this, but I haven't actually put them into any kind of shape. Um, there was also a man I remember who was a one-man band. I don't know if he was at the. The, the one you came to, but he was a wonderfully effective one-man band fellow, and he carried on doing songs. He strummed away on a guitar, and his foot did the, the 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 drum, and he 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 carried on very well. And he was such a, a public spirit, also open-minded fellow, that when he felt he'd had enough of one another, he gave it to someone and went off around Europe. Well, all the apparatus. Yes, he oh, gave wonderful. It away, away to someone, so it was a very decent. He was a most decent fellow. But I carried on doing those parties probably from, I think, 79 would be the first one. You came to 82. 82. I, I could have gate-crashed 81, and it might have been a different story. You might have said, who are you? Get out! I doubt it. But I just didn't want to be cheeky. <laughs> Not very no, I, think, I think they carried on till about 84. Yeah. Because it was 84, I bought the flat in Soho, and then I, my focus went to Soho. And there were lovely parties there too. And I remember your parents coming around, because uh, yeah. Matt hasn't said due to reasons of modesty, but his father was a very famous actor called Ed Devereaux, mm. who is famous especially in Australia, because he performed as part of a long-running serial in Australia. Yes, it's, uh, it's the, uh, the typical... There, there was a, a spate of uh, entertainments for children. I think it all comes from Lassie, um, uh, I thought that was dog food. But I guess that, no, Lassie was, was a dog. The, you know, the intelligent dog with his child companion or the intelligent animal uh, with a human companion. And I've since been informed by uh, no less than Carl Jung that this is a universal archetype. You've never spoken to Carl Jung, though? No. Him uh, having been dead before you were yeah, born? Yeah, but he, he wrote a book I read once. Ah. And, uh, and he's I, in the cosmos. Sense I feel I'm communicating <laughs> through, the, through the ether. But if you look at Dick Wigginton and his cat... Skippy the bush kangaroo and the little boy with him. Flipper was another show. So okay. there was a spate of these shows. It was very popular to have a young boy, maybe a slightly lonely boy, who befriends an animal. And of course, that's Dick Whittington and his cat. It's the same archetype. But your anyway. father was the uh, amiable uncle or something. He was, the, he was the father, the widowed father. The widowed oh, father, father who had... Uh, uh, and the sort of quasi-nanny figure was the very glamorous actress Lisa Goddard. Um, uh, who was who became a kind of nanny stroke surrogate mother, and uh, my father was playing the the rugged and stoical widower. Uh, there we are, but that's that's not nothing to do but with this. He was story. a rugged and stoical drinker on a major scale. He was. He stopped towards the end. Ah, well, uh, towards the end. To do that, I think. Yes, to give, given a stark choice, he became uh, he became <laughs> circumspect. Live or drink. Yeah, and uh, he. Um, 
But he was part of that generation, remembering the Soho days at Tisbury Court. Of course, there, there were those venues, that Jerry's Club, which I'm going to lure you to at some point. Oh, good, I, I to. demand to buy you dinner and drink there. I thought it was going to close, but it probably still is going to close. No, we're going to try and keep it open. Oh, are we? Oh, it's moribund, but in a, vir- in a very charming way. I oh, think, oh. but it, it, it's, it's been reported as being moribund, like Soho has been reported as moribund for the last... 40 years. Oh. You know, the definition of Soho was a place that was always better 20 years ago. Yes. Uh, yes. So I don't think, I think the reports of not its death, but its, its moribund state are greatly exaggerated. Moribundity. There we are, moribundity. It's a word that I've ever used or I know. I think it's, it's wonderful that it's probably the first time that word has been uttered on it air. Maybe. An abundance of moribundity. An abundance of, is that perhaps a new song? It might be, <laughs> but I think it'll have to be done elsewhere than Anyway, now, I'm digressing. Podcast. I'm digressing horribly now. Soho was after after Rectory Road in Oxford. It was Tisbury Court. Soho became the kind of epicenter of your activities. To come to. Yes, very much so. Yes. And d- describe the flat. It was fantastic. It it was like something from film noir or an Edward Hopper painting. The doorway was in a dark and dingy alleyway, surrounded by. Uh, Tisbury Court, namely. Tisbury Court, full yeah. Full of what were called near beer joints, still is, I think, where yeah. unwary tourists are lurk, uh, lured downstairs and are only given near beer and, and asked if they want to talk to a girl. And that's all they get to do. They think they're going down there for more substantial matters, but mm. they end up being charged large sums doing nothing. And these these rook, rookery joints there were, were, mm. were where it was. So but actually, any, one had a one had a frisson of uh, nostalgie de la boue, slightly, you know, uh, coming. Boo being a mention, uh, a word for muck, really. Muck, right? yes, yeah. gutter lust, or how yes, would you translate it? And he went, as you say, through that rather black door, which I did put a new sign on, uh, saying to one Tisbury Court grandly. Um, but it, we went up these rather dingy stairs, and then you came out as you carry on by that, because you'll do it better than I. Well, did you ever? Did you ever get uh, people? Uh, ringing the bell thinking it was uh, a house of ill repute or something. No, not that, but I got people ringing the bell out of the blue, yes. Yes, true. yes. Were you ever tempted to become a pimp? No, not no. really. No. <laughs> rather far from my normal line of business. No, I, I think so, uh, yes. No, I didn't You're enough that. of a polymath as it is. <laughs> well, anyway, so you got into the room, and then you found... Well, you found it was very... It was, I don't want to use the word bijou, that's a cliché, but it was, it was compact... And there was a diner and a kitchen and, 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 and a bedroom. But the beautiful thing was it faced uh, two streets. One window faced, I believe, as I recall, Tisbury Court. And then, uh, was it Wardle Rupert, Street? Rupert, Rupert Street. Street. Rupert Street. Rupert Street. And a market. That was a thing, was the Rupert Street market with all the vegetable sellers below, all of whom I knew fondly. But one really had a sense of being in the middle of it all there, oh, the yes. middle of media Soho. It was superb. It was. And the, 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 the street, I wish they still existed, it's all disappeared now. But there was a wonderful man called Rocky who didn't have any actual practical boxing skill, but Rocky Marciano, he looked faintly like Rocky Marciano, mm. so he was called Rocky. And there was a man who sold fruit as well, and a very polished gentleman who always wore a suit, wore a suit and he introduced um, things like, um, uh, what are they called? Some kind of, uh, some kind of fungus, this kind of... Uh, anyway, very exotic mushrooms. He was the first person to sell on a street market all sorts of exotic mushrooms that weren't available in any shop. Hmm. And then within 10 or 15 years, they were available in every damn supermarket. But they were so an exotic choice in those days. They were, and people hmm. used to come from miles away to hmm. his stall to buy these exotic mushrooms. Um, one of them had a revolting name, but I can't remember anyway. <laughs> but also, uh, again, being uh, uh, digressing yet more... Uh, 
the food available. I remember the, the, the platters that you prepared from local resources, the market and Lima stores and what have you. There was such delicious food to be had. Yes, the lovely Lima store is still there in mm. Green Street, I'm glad to say. And you're still an obituary of Soho. There's still a pilgrimage to Bar Italia on a, on a regular basis, is there Absolutely. Not? I go to Fifth Street to Bar Italia, or as, as private I used to call it, Filth Street, but it's not mm. really filthy anymore. Mm. Opposite Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club yes. is the Bar Italia, the wonderful Bar Italia, whom I know, which I know, have known for many decades now, and 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 wrote a song in homage to oh, did recently. You? Indeed, yes, no. could I my. could I talk about some of your uh, the, your your songs? You could if you can remember them. Yes, well, I, I'm sure you can because you played well, on most of them. Well, I mean, I have my favourites. Everybody has their favourites. Um, since we're on that subject, I would say Hot Mr. Potter because it's it's weird and intense, ah. but also I like. Being of a melancholy disposition, uh, I like Holmes Rocks very much. And I thought for some reason, it was one of those weird things that happens in a studio. We were recording and that day we came out with something good and we knew we'd got something good mm. and everybody was on top of it. And there was a, I, I, I'm reluctant to use the word muse, but if there is such a thing as a muse, I think the I muse agree. was with us. No, that's one of my favourite songs. Mm. Uh, and, and you did a wonderful ending rip on the saxophone, because Matt plays both piano and saxophone. So on many of those tracks, he's the <laughs> main musician. <laughs> and my father my father really enjoyed that track too. He, oh, thought, he? he thought that was really... He found it very sort of plaintive and reflective. He enjoyed it very much. Well, it was actually quite a racy song because it was about a man called Holmes, uh, mm. sort of echoing Sherlock Holmes, but mm. about a man who's a doctor and he's the only doctor who rocks and he goes to nightclubs and dances all the pretty things and so on. So it's actually quite... Uh, I, 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 the tune is uh, on the on the melancholy side, but the words are actually quite lively. Absolutely, about, and that, that, that juxtaposition is what makes it work, I think. I suppose you're right, yes, now you mention it. But if I was to look uh, like, as it were, a synop in a synoptic way of, of, of your output as a songwriter, and I don't want to fall into the trap of being binary, but there are often... Two Richard Fordhams in the song. There is the, the whimsical comic Richard Fordham, and there's often the uh, reflective Richard Fordham. Are you conscious of that, or when you get an inspiration, it just turns out one way or turns out another way? Well, I'm afraid, no. I never thought of myself as binary, although it's quite a nice way to think of one. Uh, well, I don't like... It's like the old joke. There are two types of people in this world, people who divide the world into two types of people and people who don't. It's a sort of a circular paradox or irony. But I just, just for the sake of painting with a broad brush, um, you've got wonderful scar tunes like uh, scar inspired tunes like the dinosaur song mm. I and then your poor because I'm a dinosaur, dinosaur. and then you've right. got then you've got which Matt did as a video by the way as well mm. so he's got equal right as I to sing the thing also I'm going to this is I'm going to spring this on you live on air so to speak I'm I'm late in this year I'll be working with a scar band oh, really? uh, and uh, it would be quite nice if we could do a version of it uh all PRS will be paid in full. Uh, <laughs> well, that'll be the first I've had for a few years. I know, it's quite fun though, isn't it? Yeah. I find PRS payments now are so rare. It's just, the, it's just the novelty rather than the amount of money that excites. PRS, for those not in the loop, uh, is Performing Right Society, which pays yeah. a royalty on every song performed in certain yeah. circumstances. I can't tell you what those circumstances are. 
I used to get some because some of my old records in the 80s were played on sort of provincial commercial radio stations, which I just thought we listened to by David. Mm. But I used to get royalties, nevertheless. It's exciting, though, isn't it? Even if it's not much yeah. money, it's exciting, yeah, it's exciting to know that one exists yeah, as an artist. It does sort of validate you, I suppose, in a way. That's true enough. But I haven't thought of this. I mean, I must, it's, it's very interesting you should say that because I'm at the moment engaged in my very first confessional song. I've never done this before. In fact, one of my... What, you mean as in autobiographical? Well, uh, what my darling Rosie said, my, my middle daughter, mm. said, um, your songs will never be popular because they don't attract people's emotions. You've got to get to your vulnerability and sing a, a song about that. And I've just done that. I'm not going to go on about that. It hasn't been recorded yet. But that, that's what I've... An actual confessional song is what I've written now. And that's the first time I've ever done that. Well, I the think only song I've done... Sorry to interrupt you. Sorry, no, I'm interrupting but the, you. The, song that, uh, the only song I've done sorry. that had even a faint confessionality about it was a song called Invisible Flame. My love burns the same like, like an, an invisible, invisible flame. flame. The unfortunate thing was Kimberly Rue sang it. And Kimberly has a lovely, uh, rather, Cockney accent, but it doesn't really suit the song. And I haven't ever re-recorded it. But I, do I enjoyed his version, though. Oh, did you? Oh, yeah. Good, because I, I obviously thought of it differently myself but no I'm, I'm very fond of Kim but he never wanted to sing I had to bully him to make him really? sing really he's a fine singer he didn't want to not on my songs anyway. he said, right. they're your songs you sing them uh, but he sang several of my songs like Roundabout for instance is a song which uh, he, I wrote but he said I wanted to write a song about Roundabout being on a Roundabout because it's all about being stuck on a Roundabout here I am sitting on a desert yeah. island or, yes or that's Tatic right island or something. Drag, yeah <laughs> Let, let's have the chicken and egg question. Let's have the chicken and egg question. Uh, what's first? Lyrics or, or motif, melodic motif? Well, it's an interesting question. You'd have a view on this because you're a composer. But um, the answer is, I don't... It's been either way, in fact. I sometimes thought of a mm. phrase, playing the piano just idly, tinkling away, and then written a lyric around it, and then one thing's gone to another. But I think... The normal thing, if, if there is a normal, is for the lyric idea, lyrical idea to come first and the tune to come mm. second. I tend to, I tend to prefer that way. I, I like to work, working when I'm doing, doing work for theatre, uh, musical theatre or opera, or whatever you want to call it, whether it's grand or modest. I like the words to be the foundation and, and the melody to evolve from the words. Though some people work the other way around. I don't like, I don't like the words... Um, this is just me talking about myself now, which it shouldn't be, but uh, uh, I get cross when you get the words influencing the melody and the melody influence the words, not in a symbiotic way, because then you get the result of a dog chasing its tail. Um, how do... Wh- You're above my head there. I'm well, not sure I uh, can visualise what that means. Well, if, 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 the, if, if uh, for example, somebody comes up with, with the words and they're in a certain metre and form... And then the melody, it's a bit like analogous to a jacket fitting on a body. I imagine, I imagine the words being the body and the oh. clothes being the melody. So we clothe the words. I like to clothe the words with melody. That's something for Private Eye Suits Corner. That's a good, no, it's, a very good, it's a very good image and, yeah. uh, to tell the Private Eye Suits Corner because it's right. That's very true. Um, I'm not sure it's how I think of things. I don't probably think as holistically or... Uh, strategically as you're talking about because you're uh, Matt I should say is a properly trained musician I'm not a musician at all but I do write songs and, uh, and lyrics and stuff like that but that's because I like doing it not because I'm any good at uh, well they, they work the thing is that it, you know, empirically 
they, they work. I, I like to use the over, I'm going to use an overblown analogy now. There may be a soldier who wins a badge at Sandhurst, but who wins a medal in war? Who is the real soldier? I mean, one can sort of, you know, uh, it's okay having the well, that's training. That's a pretty easy one to get the answer to. <laughs> yes, exactly. And uh, I, I, I'm addicted to military metaphors. It must be a sign of being an... Are un- you the onward Christian soldiers? I well, perhaps know. marching as to war. Back yeah, to the it. point, though, it's the, the, I'm going back to the chicken and egg question. How does, does the composing process, it, do you surprise yourself? Do words come to you? Or do you sometimes start with maybe an idea that, that exercises your mind, maybe something that irritates you? What's, what's the motivating emotion before even the song or melody arrives, or song or lyrics arrive? Well, uh, as far as I can say, uh, ideas just spring up uh, as mm. one gets out of the bath in the morning, or so, uh, metaphorically. Uh, an idea occurs to me and I write it down that's what I've done in the past I mean it's not always the case but that, that's more the way around of it an idea or again sitting at the piano perhaps just a twiddle a little twiddle mm. suddenly develops into something more but take for example uh, an old favourite of mine uh, the dinosaur song those who have not had the benefit of listening it's a, it's a wonderful scar song with a wonderfully simple clear form with that lovely distinctive offbeat and and the story is about uh, dinosaurs coming from another planet and colonizing Earth. How did that idea come to no, you? It's not quite that. It's slightly more subtle. Uh-huh. It, it, the, 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 what the lyric says is that um, the dinosaurs got bored of being on Earth and they were offered a wonderful package tour. And so they went off on a package tour, leaving right. behind a few of their wrecks, including Dan- Tyrannosaurus Rex. He was loathsome. So, so carnivorous. <laughs> And off they went round the planets, but they never found a nicer globe than this. So come here, baby, and give us a kiss. And so we'll, we'll come down, we'll land on a continent, and only leave a little dent. You did all this brilliantly in your video. Hmm. Um, and so they were coming back. That was a re- it was called the return of the dinosaurs. The return of the dinosaurs, it wasn't yes. the first time. They were coming back. For so a- they, they'd left and regretted it. They'd had yes. sort of buyer's remorse. Well, they had a bad tour guide. They had a bad tour guide, and then they came back to Earth. Poor things. Poor things. Now, that's an amazing conceit. I mean, that's, that, that, that really... Uh, oh, well, let, let, it really should be an illustrated children's book, which would sell very well. That's quite um, There we are. Well, we, 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 perhaps we should work on this. Let's do, that's know. our next gig. Don't tell anyone else. Shh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, members of the audience, you didn't hear that last exchange. No, quite. <laughs> Well, it probably never happened. Is one real? I know that's the that's the that's the joy of so many ideas. But, I mean, I, the, the idea of making it into what it became, Return of Dinosaurs. It, mm. I can remember coming back on my bicycle mm-hmm. to Rectory Road, in fact, mm-hmm. um, and thinking of this uh, scar thing. Uh, uh, I want to hold your paw. That was it. I want to hold your paw because I'm a dinosaur. That was the key bit of the lyric. Mm. You see, once I'd done that, the rest of it kind of followed on. And so, the, and d- 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 again, this is perhaps going into it too deeply or unnecessarily deeply, do, do, do the ideas arrive in words or, do the, or in images? No, in words in my case. I'm not good on images. I'm mm. very poor at images. Mm. But no, it was, it was, I want to hold your paw because I'm a dinosaur. And that, that, once I'd got that, I clung onto it. I can remember coming back on my bicycle and flinging it down and rushing to my bunker and starting to play it so I'd get it yes. fixed down and recorded. Do you ever get, do you ever get, um, do you ever get uh, what one might call 
uh, writer's panic when you have an idea and there isn't a pen to hand or, or, or it's elusive and it may evaporate. These days, my dear fellow, with the, in the days of the iPhone, there's no danger ever of that. Well, there we in are. In the old days, it was. I mean, the, the, the lost chord, wasn't the lost chord about something that someone had once thought of, a wonderful thing? Yes. And then forgot it. And then forgot it. And, yes. I, and also the... Uh, in those the, days, it can happen. Analogous to, uh, to uh, Coleridge's uh, visitor from Porlock when he was writing... Kubla Khan, evidently the version we have yeah. today is inferior That's to the it. one he had. Well, that was a theory, but he was on drugs, so you couldn't he was be absolutely sure. In fact, um, I, uh, I, the chemist where I live in Highgate is the same chemist... Not very... Really? ...is the same chemist where he bought his laudanum. And I really? went in there the other day, and it still has the original late 18th century shop front, and I went in and I said, excuse me, can I have some laudanum? And they said, no, sir, we don't sell that sort of thing. I said, you sold it to Coleridge. And in a deadpan response, the chemist said, well, you know nowadays, sir, health and safety and all that nonsense. I thought it was very sporting of him. But, the ke- but yes, again... What, what Lord, tell, tell me and indeed the listeners what laudanum actually is, because it's deadly stuff. Laudanum, as I understand it... Um, never having taken any narcotics in my life, and of course not. No, aha, uh-huh. uh-huh. and uh, is 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 a, is an opiate. Is in the opiate group. It's an opiate thing. And I believe that uh, uh, Dr. Gilman, who was treating Coleridge when Coleridge lived at South Grove in in Highgate, uh, the his initial addiction had come from a tooth infection, ah. and then he got used to the laudanum, and he was being treated by Dr. Gilman for addiction and being a very good patient but then sneaking out across Pond Square to the apothecary apothecary in the village. That's a story. But anyway, he had a visitor from Porlock. Uh, We have, if he'd had, if Coleridge had had an iPhone, maybe he would have been more prolific. I know that, um, uh, again, things come in threes. The third example uh, is Chopin, who said that he would often improvise something on the piano and by the time he laboured to transcribe it he regarded the transcribed version as inferior to his initial inspiration well, I, I, no, I'm, not, I'm not in any kind of august company like that but I do find that if I write down a tune and yeah. then come back and play it later on that day I write down a very bizarre notation which is no use to anyone but except me and then play it again mm-hmm. uh, and, and I'll, it comes out different and then again uh, uh, and the next morning it'll be different again and that's just evolving in some way. It may well have got worse, by the way, in the sense that you're but saying... But these transmutations can either lead to it getting better or, or, or degenerating, depending on what your aesthetic they judgment might, yeah. is. Yes, that's quite true, Matt. But mm. the thing is, what, as it evolves, so I tend to follow it. Uh, and, and then it ends up as... I'm trying to think of... I can't remember Holmes Rocks. Um, I can't remember the, the principle of Holmes mm. Rocks. But, but there is, again... Uh, not being a trained... There's a nightclub on the corner. There's a nightclub on the Sherlock corner. Sherlock steps inside. Anyway, I can remember that, but I can't remember the uh, origins of the song very There's well. a, But there is uh, perhaps a dialogue, and again, this is amateur psychology. I'm, I could be talking nonsense, but there is the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. Do you find sometimes you're having a... Con- you, you might be having a conversation, a dialogue with your subconscious, and things that seem to come from nowhere... Which, the, again, going back to an earlier point, I made, what the Greeks would call the muse, or ecstasis, ah. standing outside yourself, or, or that strange process. Obviously, there's a friend of mine who has a scientific and very materialistic turn of mind, I mean material in the scientific sense of the word, who says, you know, there's a perfectly 
logical scientific explanation for it, but it is exhilarating when an idea comes and it seems to work. It's, it's so exhilarating. Yes, it's an exciting period. And yeah. also, I find that's absolutely right. When you first have an idea for a song or a tune of some sort, but then also, when it, it often finds, I often find anyway, that I've got, a, I've got a, maybe a few lines and a verse or two, and then it gets completely stuck for days and days. And suddenly, if I've got a full verse done, for example, I can then mm. do the other three verses. It's normally a three-verse trick um, very easily because it then comes, it then flows because you've got the whole thing, the plot, as it were, is worked right. out. Because, I mean, uh, uh, you say, take the dinosaur song as an example. I had, I want to hold your paw because I'm a dinosaur. The idea of the dinosaurs going off on a package tour and then finding their package tour was poorly sold and missold indeed, and coming back jolly annoyed to this earth, uh, was a completed development on, on, along the road. I can't remember how, quite how that worked out. I just remember that the first thing was, I want to hold your paw because I'm a dinosaur, and that was a nice little... It's got to be the most exciting thing about any form of uh, creative writing or painting or, or any process, is, is uh, hoping to delight and surprise people. That's why one would do it but when one surprises oneself and thinks my goodness where did that come from and 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 when it works it's um uh to paraphrase miles davis you know it's the best fun you can have with your clothes on uh when he was talking about playing jazz but that's that he's he's either maybe he's pre is he preceding that comic that has a dubious track record of marrying his adopted daughter because he oh. said that sex was the greatest fun you could mm. have without laughing Woody Allen. Woody Allen. That, he said that. Well, he said it before Miles Davis. It's a moot point. Ah. Because Miles Davis was very original mind. Well, maybe it was he, a... It Miles was Davis could well have been... In the ether of Greenwich Village at the time. Yes. <laughs> I, 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 I would take Miles Davis as a, as a preferable choice to... I'm not terribly fond of... I don't really know much about... Um, what's his name? The, Woody Allen. Uh, you were talking hmm. about things coming out of the ether. I'm more concerned about things disappearing into the bloody ether. Yeah. My memory is like a sieve, and so I can't just remember what I just said. Well, also, I think what some... What I just said. What I just, just said. said. What, what I just, just said. What I just said. That's about what as good I just as I said. <laughs> this has been very good. Now, I'm mindful of the fact that in a few moments, my good friend Richard has to go to the lovely town of Brighton on the south coast, so perhaps we should draw things to a conclusion. Yes. I'm not sure how we draw them to a conclusion. Because well... Because the maitre d' has disappeared. Well, we, we, can, we can... We can just stop. We can come... We can... Well, let us let us extemporise some perorations. Yes, Richard, it's been lovely talking to you, and I'd like to do this again when appropriate at some time in the future, if if it suits you. My dear fellow, you'll be you'll be roped in and signed up and all that stuff. Uh, yes, most certainly, I'd love to do it again, my dear, because we've only scratched the surface. We really have. We really have, because I mean, what I can what what I'd originally sketched out for us to cover during this little session has not been begun really it well leapt around the place we've been a bit discursive but i think it's only appropriate for the first one perhaps yes it's actually i believe not the first one well i did a couple before but with you and me just monologue yes just monologue marvelous this is a duologue and a, and a, a great dialogue thank you so much well that. thank you uh, my name's matt Devereux, and i've been talking to my dear friend and collaborator richard fordham